Hello, and welcome to In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, and I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. Each week, we explore new bits of gravel tech that's hitting the scene, as well as our own feelings about riding in the gravel community. This podcast wouldn't be possible without your support, so please visit us at buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride to see how you too can support us. It also wouldn't be possible without your questions and feedback. Please feel free to shoot us a note at craig at thegravelride.bike or hit us up on social media as we love hearing from you. With all that said, let's dive right into this week's conversation. Randall, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Yourself, Craig? I'm doing good. It seems like we're both in different places today, which is going to be interesting. I guess that's the beauty of podcasting. Yeah, do it from anywhere. Yeah, I find uh, I'm living a very... Uh, fluid life these days in terms of housing situation and where I find myself. And you're in, you're in LA right now. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I'll get into that a little bit later, but I'm down in, in uh, Pacific Palisades, actually right at the top of Michael Lane, which is great. Cause there's a trailhead right here, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. But I'm, but I'm still getting this fire hose of tech coming my way. So we got ample stuff to talk about today. Yeah. So you, uh, let's, let's dive right in. Uh, what do you want to nerd about this week? So I caught wind of this new Ridley gravel bike. I think it's called the Fast Arrow. And um, I've been a, I'm have been i a fan of Ridley just because I, I used to have a Ridley road bike and I've always liked the brand. And I will say from an aesthetic perspective, they knocked it out of the park with this bike. It's just gorgeous, very well laid out. It's got a few things I think you and I both might agree we're not necessarily fans of. And I'll point out a couple to you. I mean, I definitely want people to kind of check out the link I'll put in the show notes. But these guys are doing a, an integrated bar and stem. While it looks sexy, I, I just for me, like that just doesn't work. I don't like that there, there's this inflexibility with that setup. Yeah, the, your position on the bike is such a critical factor for your comfort, your efficiency, your aerodynamics. 80% of your body is, is uh, going to, uh, 80% of your aerodynamic uh, profile is going to be your body in general. And so not having any real adjustability other than on the vertical axis along the steer is, is uh, something that I don't like about these designs. There are some that actually have some angle adjustment and even like um, some sort of shim mechanism where you can have a de facto stem length adjustment depending on how you position this shim, but this is not the case in this one. So yeah, it's, it's lighter and it looks slick, um, but it's not lighter enough yeah. uh, to justify that compromise. Yeah. I mean, I do like what they've done with the frame there. I mean, I'm not a super like pro arrow guy for gravel. Cause I don't think it makes a whole lot of difference, but everything, the way they've kind of laid out the fork I like that they have the chain stays, sorry, the seat stays a little bit lower because I do, I have in my experience, uh, experienced greater compliance from that kind of setup. So I think they're thinking about a lot of the right things with this bike. Yeah, the, the, the chain stay placement thing, um, there, there is some compliance that can be built in, though I would be... Um, you can also build a you know compliance into traditional chain stays that have a junction uh, where the seat tube and top tube also meet. Uh, so that is more of a like an aesthetic element that is becoming popular in bike design uh, because of of how it looks. Uh, I think it has less to do with with compliance and so on because uh, you can build compliance in in other ways. But I think aesthetically, it, they've really dialed it here. That's the thing. I mean, the devil is in the details. It's really easy for the layman to kind of look at a bike like this and read the marketing language. But if the carbon layup 
isn't adjusted to provide any compliance. It's just tubes sticking into a different part of the bike. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's a couple other things going on here, which you know you've heard me harp on about uh, in the past when we talked about the Exploro, uh, the 3 uh the new Exploro. Uh, you know, the non-round seat posts, like just run a round post. These posts are not more aero, and then you're constrained in terms of being able to run a dropper, which is a definite like must-have on on bikes that you're you know really potentially riding on borderline mountain bike territory. I don't like integrated seat clamps because they tend to slip or, or, or not provide the pressure around the seat post in a way that's, you know, um, well distributed. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a few things here that are very, uh, trendy, but I'm not a huge fan of. I find it interesting, you know, you and I, and I cer- certainly, I can speak for the I in this conversation, the I, Craig, harps on dropper posts all the time. And I know unquestionably you're a fan, but I've also, yeah. you know, I've been talking to people in the Midwest and other rider t- riding territories where they're kind of like, eh, you know, I never really need to drop my posts. My terrain is pretty mellow and, um, you know, I just don't see the advantages of that. So, I mean, I, I kind of recognize that like mm-hmm. everything we talk about, it is location dependent. Yeah, I agree there. Um, but nonetheless, there's no reason not to have the option of offer, like adding that in the future. You know, you live in the Midwest, you're in a flatter area, your terrain just doesn't really warrant needing to get like so down and back over the rear wheel and, and, uh, and absorbing a lot of, uh, the terrain, uh, by using your body as suspension, like great, but you know, maybe you move, maybe you go on a trip, maybe you're riding it in a different way. Maybe you're hitting different terrain. And there's no advantage to these non-round posts. There's only downside. And so that this is why I, I just view it as something that is um, uh, really a mistake that, that is, that is a, a mistaken trend in the industry along with like these bar stem combos that are not adjustable. That's the interesting thing. I mean, I feel like unlike a mountain bike where you may have to choose at the time of purchase to get a suspension bike or a hardtail, with these gravel bikes, to your point, you can put on a suspension stem for a particular trip or even a particular ride. Or as you said, you can put on a dropper post and it really changes the personality along with the tires, which is really cool as long as you're starting with a chassis that gives you all the flexibility in the world. Exactly. Yeah. And and it goes back to kind of my core philosophy is like, this is a bike that should be able to do all the things. Now, if you need, if you don't need it to to do all the things, you could tailor it to do this, you know, to, to excel at the experiences that you're after, but then there's no reason to constrain it because we have, you know, with everything from, from disc brakes to different wheel sizes and tubeless and all this other stuff, like you can have a single bike that will adapt uh, and be future proof against all the different use cases you may have, or, you know, when you move on to a different machine, whatever use cases that, that, you know, the next owner would have. Yeah. Um, They can really be chameleons and that's just, yeah, it's super liberating, you know? Yeah. There's one other so, thing I wanted to call out on this. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, you we, did. <laughs> yeah. Because you want to blow up the conversation with our listeners. We've already had some mail, and we can get into it. Um, our buddy Keith emailed in about one by versus two by. And let me mm-hmm. pull up what he said, because I think he sort of hit the nail on the head um, right away. And he said, I think he missed the point of the real argument in favor of two by it's not about the gear range. It's about the jumps between the gears. And yeah. before I let you dive into that, let's, let's sort of blow people's mind because on this Ridley bike is specced a hub from a Belgian company called classified. And, um, maybe it, it, 
it's referred to you 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 nailed nailed it correctly what was it referred to as uh, a two-speed internally geared hub yeah so it's a one chain ring up front and then a, a, a standard or semi-standard 11 speed cassette in the back but the hub's got some magic in it right what are they talking about yeah, so the cassette in the back is, is the the cogs themselves and the spacing is is standard for 11 speed, um, but it has a, a custom interface with the hub, which is presumably because this internally geared hub mechanism, uh, you know, requires more room than is allowed with a tr- traditional free hub body. Uh, so that you know, there, there's a proprietary part there, but I can understand why they did it. Uh, it's justifiable. I don't like proprietary stuff, but that's fine. Uh, what's interesting here is this two-speed internally geared hub. Uh, it's electronically actuated, so you have another battery and another, you know, wireless, um, you know, system and, and a button to to control it to switch between the two. Um, and you know, the claims of efficiency here are pretty extraordinary, and the, and the claims on weight are pretty extraordinary. So on weight, they're saying that it's essentially, um, you know, the the difference of a say like a one by GRX system. Um, with this uh, two-by internally geared hub is going to be on par with a 2X GRX system with a traditional you know, non-internally geared hub uh, that, that's a DT350, which is you know, a reasonably lightweight, high-quality hub. Uh, and so there's not really a, a, a material weight gain here, uh, which is one of the big compromises with uh, you know, tr- uh, you know, internally geared hubs that are, say, more than two speeds because there's a whole bunch of complexity in there. Uh, so that's a good thing, which makes this viable for like the real hardcore enthusiasts and not just like the the types of people who are doing a roll off hub because they you know they want an end of the world bike that uh you know an internally a fully sealed drivetrain that'll just ride forever. Uh, so that's something that they I think that they really uh, nailed with this. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is this uh, efficiency claim, which is ninety nine percent. Which is what does that mean? What does it refer to? Uh, basically, it's power in, power out. So when you, so there's, there's two modes, um, the, the taller mode, the equivalent of the, the, um, the larger chain ring is, is essentially going to be a one-to-one ratio, which means that there's zero loss or there should be zero loss associated with the planetary gears inside the hub. Um, and that makes sense, right? Any sort of internally geared hub is going to be most efficient when it's in that one-to-one ratio, because the gears inside aren't moving. It's, it's basically like a locked hub. It's like a traditional hub, just a little bit heavier. Um, but the 99% efficiency claim when it's in that lower gear, um, when, when the power is going through from the cogs, through the planetary gears, and then being transferred to the wheel, that's pretty exceptional. Uh, and if that is true, uh, that makes this very viable um, because that is not a significant loss. Uh, just to put it into context, a, uh, a chain drive system... Um, where you have a chain, you know, going through, say, like a straight chain, and it's going through a derailleur. So you have like it's coming off the two cogs. It goes around the two derailleur pulleys and around. Um, if that system is dialed and fresh and well lubricated and so on, it'll have ninety-seven percent efficiency. So the incremental loss of efficiency is only this additional one percent, which is um, if you're that same traditional drivetrain was dirty, you'd actually lose even more efficiency than what you're losing with this hub. So it's, it's a pretty trivial amount of loss for what is a substantial benefit of this extra low end on a system that doesn't have a, a, a significant uh, weight penalty associated with it. So it's pretty interesting. It is. So, I mean, going 
back to kind of Keith's comments about the sort of jumps between gears and keeping them tighter. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly had read a lot about that when I, you know, four years ago got my open or whenever it was. And I was sold on that fact at that time for me because I was getting rid of a road bike and my open was going to be my gravel bike and my road bike. And then I found, and I talked about this on an earlier podcast with you, you know, it was just jumping around too much. It was, the chain was bouncing around. This was kind of pre or early clutch derailleur time. And so I went to the one by essentially just to have sort of a tighter chain and less flapping around. But what I found was I, I, as a rider, didn't miss those jumps in gears at all. Like I didn't find the, the one by setup for me in my type of riding to, to, um, to jump around too much. But I certainly acknowledge that people who ride on the road a lot or maybe using these bikes on the road a lot may be used to something, like sounds like Keith is, and found it lacking when he went to a one by drivetrain. Yeah, and this is something that um, you know is really the only advantage to a, a two by setup is these tighter jumps between cogs, and it's true. Like, just the the, the you are you have um, you know when you have a two by drivetrain, um, you can have essentially um, well with a traditional two by where you have two cogs up front and then a cassette in the rear. Um, it, it, let's say it's a you're you have a two by eleven. Well, the actual jumps between cogs are equivalent to what you would have with a, like a one by 14 that had a similar range, right? Cause a lot of the gears overlap. Um, and you know, those, those slightly tighter jumps are, you know, noticeable for sure. Um, and if you're in a, say like a, a pack riding situation on the road on a, you know, a false flat descent and everyone's pace lining at exactly 25 miles an hour. And you find that you're just, you know, you want your cadence to be a tiny bit higher and then you jump the, in, then you drop down a cog and you find you want it to be a tiny bit lower. Like that's the sort of situation where, um, you know, you'll notice that you feel a little bit between cogs. Um, that, um, is particularly a concern if you're not fit to your bike properly. And if you are a, a rider who is below, say, 5'10", you're probably running cranks that are too, too long or, or have a, you know, as you go down in height um, and, and down in proportional saddle height, your, your crank length is actually having a significant impact on your perception of those jumps because you don't have proportional length cranks. And in turn, the range of cadences where you can pedal smoothly and comfortably and efficiently is reduced. If you're dialed to your machine and your machine is dialed to you, um, actually the latter your machine is dialed to you, then the perception of those jumps and your comfort in a wider range of cadences, um, um, you know, perception goes down and your comfort should go up uh, as you're dialed with this machine. And a 20% jump is not huge. Well, maybe try to unpack that a little bit for me. Yeah. So, you know, let's say that I'm on 172.5 cranks. Mm -hmm. you're What's saying your saddle height? Yeah, good, good question. I don't know that off the top of my head. But yeah. I remember having this discussion with you when I bought my bike, and I think you had maybe even advocated for 170 cranks. And I was like, no, I've, I've always run 172 mm -hmm. fives, and I'm not going to make that shift right now. But tell mm -hmm. me about, you know, your, how would it change how those jumps are feeling for me to have a slightly shorter crank? Well, so... Um First off, let me start this just by saying, like, there's no, there, there's been a, bun a bunch of research done, really, you know, kind of graphing crank length to power output and sustained power and so on. And there's not a strong correlation between crank length 
and um, sustain power. But what happens is as you, with a longer crank, let's say you, you, well, for every like five millimeters of crank length increase or decrease, your torque is changing by about 3% at this scale. Um, that 3% torque is something that people harp on, um, but it actually is made up for by the fact that at the same foot speed, you'd have a 3% higher cadence. And so then now we look at the, the, the animal machine interface. And if you are on the, the ratio that I recommend as a starting point is 22% of your saddle height. So your crank length should be 22% of your saddle height. So in my case, I run a 770 saddle height, which is on the higher side for someone of my height. Um, you know, I like it high and forward, like a time trialist. Um, and my cranks are 170. I'm 5'11", or, or 180 uh, centimeters for the, the metric users amongst us. And the difference between that and the 172 fives that I, you know, that I used to race on is material, especially as I get tired. Like you just, um, trivial difference in torque, but my pedal stroke um, is, is smoother. And it's smoother even when um, my form is starting to break down because my body is, is getting tired over the course of a ride. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm of the height that bicycles are designed around. If you're five foot four and you have a, you know, a 700 millimeter saddle height or less, um, you're generally on cranks that are significantly greater than that 22% ratio. It might be a 25% ratio of your, you know, crank length to saddle height. And this is, you know, this would be the equivalent of me running 190s or, or even 200 millimeter cranks. It's just not, uh, not proportional. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense with smaller athletes that that might be the case and bigger athletes, a lot taller athletes. It is yeah. interesting for me to sort of think about what you're saying as not having had the opportunity to kind of make a more nuanced change, like 172.5 to 170s, and see mm -hmm. how that would feel. I just had that biased historic reaction to the suggestion mm -hmm. to come off 172.5s. I have a set of 165s here, so maybe I'll hand them off at some point, because I suspect, I think you're uh, a little bit shorter than I am, and yeah, proportionally... 510? Oh, okay. So somewhere between 165 yeah. and 170 will probably be end up end up being optimal depending on your, your saddle height, which is a proxy for your leg length and so on. Um, yeah, I think you would notice a difference. And the fact that you already are not having a problem with the jumps between cogs on those wider range one by uh, cassettes um, says that, uh, you know, this would only be an improvement from there. Because again, yeah, the yeah, you'll be comfortable in a wider range of cadences. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, like you, I've, I I have a quite a high saddle height for mm -hmm. my height. I've got long legs and I like to have a tall saddle because mm -hmm. I have that dropper. I know I can bring it down and I want to mm -hmm. have this like great high climbing position that I like. Well, you optimize for pure power and efficiency rather than optimizing or, or compromising for having to still be able to get your butt, you know, around the saddle and back because you can just drop the saddle out of the way and it, it's, yeah. uh, you know, you don't have to think about that. It's super liberating. So I guess yeah. going back to this classified hub, I mean, it's intriguing, mm -hmm. but it is proprietary, as you mentioned. So like having, you'd have to have two of these rear hubs if you're going to have two wheel sets, et cetera. So the whole bunch of things that are involved in the success of that product, even if the claims are true. Um, let's see. Do you have to have two of these rear hubs? The, the hub goes, the hub and the actuation... Uh, mechanism in that that custom through axle skewer would be transferable 
And if you had another wheel set, um, you could have another wheel set with a, tr- you know, just a, a standard cassette and it would work just fine. You just wouldn't have the two by, uh, functionality. Uh, so sure. it's not, it's not quite so bad, uh, as that you could retrofit this to an existing bike. I believe it doesn't look like there's anything, any special interface at that, at the BB, uh, sorry, at the dropout. Uh, so this should be retrofitable, but it does look like the hub body is proprietary. The hub, yeah, the free hub body is proprietary. Actually, this isn't really, other than the fact that SRAM is a big company and they offer a lot of different options, same with Shimano, it's actually no different than Microspline and XD. Because in both of those cases, those companies have patented every single you know way you can think of of trying to attach a cassette to that free hub body. Um, E13 found a, a way around it in, in those uh, some cassettes that we use. But they license freely the free hub standard but then make it really difficult to design another cassette that attaches to it so that basically it's, it's, it's proprietary uh, in a similar way. It's just you know the cassettes that, uh, the range of cassettes and the availability of cassettes from, from classified aren't as great, but it's, uh, at least it doesn't seem to be proprietary for its own sake of like, uh, restraining competition. Uh, which is, you know, seems to be the case in these with these other two free hub standards. Right. Well, I applaud the innovation. I'm excited for our listeners to go check it out because I think it's interesting. For those of you have, who have a roadie background, I guess Tom Boonin is an investor there. So there may be a road racing angle to this as well. Obviously, a lot of road racers have not adopted one buy in the way the gravel community has. So potentially, uh, being a Belgian-based company, I'm sure they're eyeing this for the classics and other road races out there. Yeah, I, I'm still, and the other thing I think will be an interesting dynamic is seeing, um, so so 12 speed is is now here, uh, Rotor and now Campagnolo. Um, uh, Campagnolo's hinting at 13 speed. And when you get into one by 13 speed, um, you get to a place where the added complexity of a system like this becomes even less appealing um, given that you can get jumps that are tight enough, like what, what jumps are tight enough to satisfy the people who just have to have tight jumps. And yeah, that'll think, be, that'll be interesting to see evolve. Definitely. Like, I think that's the big commercial challenge for these guys is like, yeah. can they possibly achieve adoption in the market before these other things that are just simpler and basically solve the problem, um, in a, in a more simplified way are, are readily available to people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm holding out for like i think 13 one by 13 speed is is you know i'm already completely satisfied with you know one by 11 and in fact i haven't even bothered to to upgrade to one by 12 because i don't want to deal with electronic and batteries i think it's a waste of money and then not uh doesn't enhance my ride uh so i'm already happy with the way that things are right now yeah yeah well i tell you this past weekend i was thinking about gears yeah I, i uh I did my SBT gravel ride and I was inspired to do the black version, the Mm -hmm. course that keep in mind for San Francisco riders, this is the course that I designed. And when I designed it, (laughs) I said to myself, there's no frigging way I'm going to do this. Um, But I have to say, like I I was inspired by, by two things. One is an unfortunate that obviously Mark Sackowitz's passing kind of gave me a little extra motivation to go out there and go deep. And two, I've got a friend who every year on his birthday wants to go out and ride a hundred off-road miles. And while mm-hmm. the course was only 75, it did have n- over 9,000 feet of climbing in it. So we put a hearty day out there on the bike. Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was fun to go deep. Yeah. 
Well, I think that that qualifies as like a hundred mile exertion equivalent with that much climbing, especially on some of the rough terrain around here. Yeah. And it was, I mean, the, it was supposed to be a 90 degree day and my buddy did convince me to leave at four 30 in the morning, um, ah. which was a cool adventure. Like I just I haven't been night riding in a while. And uh-huh. although it was a pain in the ass to get up that early, it was fun to just put a couple hours in. We saw a sunrise, um, kind of going into mirror beach, uh, which was nice. And Lovely. you, you do, you know, anybody who's done like, big miles or overnight stuff or ultra distance stuff knows that like sometimes you you're buoyed by the arrival of the sunrise mm-hmm. in the morning in a way that makes you kind of forget about the couple hours you might've put in prior to sunrise. Yeah. Yeah. No, everything just shifts, especially yeah. if it's in the context of like a full proper all day epic. Um, yeah, that, that, that sounds like a lovely way to, uh, to start a day for sure. And I've got a great guest coming up on the interview show, a woman by the name of Jenny Tuff, talking about her experience as a ultra endurance bikepacking racing woman and just overall Ooh. badass adventurer. Yeah. Um, I think you're, you're going to love this one, Randall. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to hear it. Yeah, so we, we shifted our day to ride on Saturday versus Sunday, which was like the day that SBT had wanted people to go out because I had to, to come down to Southern California. But it's crazy to like look back a week and see that the far end of the trails that we were hitting are now engulfed in full on California wildfires, um, which has been super sad. And, you know, for those of you in different parts of the country that aren't and haven't ever lived through fire, you've got both obviously the, the damage that fire creates in the locale where it's burning and our hearts go out to all those communities affected throughout California but the air quality plummets and Mill Valley and San Francisco, we get covered in ash and it becomes just not feasible to go out and ride, um, which is really just adds to the, the horror of what's going on up there. It actually smells like uh, Guangzhou, where I used to live in southern China. And the, the PM 2.5 levels are, are on par with what you see in some of those cities. Uh, you know, definitely in some areas, it's, it's unhealthy. I was actually up on TAM yesterday, and uh, we had read the reading, and it said that, you know, the, the conditions were you know, acceptable, but we got up there, and it was, it was pretty ugly uh, in terms of just the density of, of smog uh, from, you know, you have fires to the north, you have fires to the west, uh, to the east, not to the, to the west, that's the ocean. You have fires to the north, to the east, and to the south, uh, that are substantial and uh, a lot of damage being done. And at a time when there's, I mean, we are in the midst of a pandemic. We're in the midst of, you know, in this country and in a lot of countries around the world, a lot of uh, political uh, turmoil and polarization and so on. And uh, I think in terms of uh, not just the, the physical impact, but the, the um, you know, the emotional and spiritual impact on people, like there's a lot happening and to be in the epicenter of this right now uh, makes it feel even more so. Yeah, there's a lot to it. I mean, we we talked on previous episodes about how important it is in both of our lives to just be able to get out and pedal mm-hmm. and to have that restricted, not only by time in our lives in general, but by the climate and everything that's going on in our neck of the woods. It's really, it's quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, definitely grateful to be to be healthy and definitely grateful to be in a position where 
um, you know, in the midst of a of an economic downturn as well, where there's so much uh, financial instability for people. Like I'm not, uh, you know, I'm sleeping well at night uh, in those parts of my life, and so a lot of gratitude for that, which which definitely helps to balance balance things. But um, you know, I was I've actually you know you you and I have talked quite a bit of uh, like I've been on a bit of a of a spiritual journey, spiritual awakening of late. And one of the big insights I had recently as it relates to the bike was the bike was actually cycling was one of the first things that I could do where when I was really like stressed or uncomfortable or, or even, you know, I've, I've dealt with depression in the past, I could go out on the bike and it might be hard at first and maybe even the first couple of hours, like I'd have to, you know, just, just like force myself to keep pedaling, even though I just wanted to, you know, slump into the couch or whatever else. But eventually it would deliver this experience of like enjoying my own company, uh, which is something that I think is a, a really powerful a- aspect of this experience. It's something that you can do that is uh, an act of, of like practicing loving yourself. You're doing something good for your body. You're doing something that is connecting you with, your, with, your, with the machine, with your body, your breathing, your cadence, your heart rate, your perceived exertion, what you can push through. You're flowing through the environment. You're meeting people along the way. Maybe you're riding with people. You're connecting. Um, and it's, it's something that consistently delivers um, that connective experience um, and you don't need to rely on anybody else to get it. You can, this is something you can do with yourself. And I, that idea I find very, very powerful about cycling as a, really as a therapeutic modality. It's so interesting to me. Like I spend so much time riding by myself and mm-hmm. I, I don't like, I, I crave like one group ride a month essentially. <laughs> and beyond well, that, like, I, you know, I love it. I love being out there. It, it sort of fills something in me. Sometimes I feel a little bit guilty when I'm taking in a, vis- a vista, you know, up off the mountain by myself and thinking like, God, I wish my loved ones were here with me. But I also recognize like part of what I get out of riding many days is just, as you said, the, the therapy of pedaling and allowing that physicality to release stresses that are present in my life. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's this, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, about dualism of late and how like, you know, one thing I've, I've had people say to me and observing me is, is like, I'm very much in my body. And it occurred to me like, so does that mean others are not feeling connected? And this is an experience where like, you can really, not be a mind that is decoupled from your body like it, it is a it is a merging of the two like that and which is the the deeper truth that like the the mind emerges out of the body and the body these are not separate things um and so being um like pushing yourself on a bicycle is a way of of connecting um with how how you feel and it and it kind of brings a lot to the surface i find do you think it's a recognition that you achieve or obtain later on in your cycling career or do you think we're just more attuned to it i think that definitely as with any sort of meditation and i do consider cycling to be a a rolling meditation especially done solo um and especially when you do it when it's hard when you don't want to when you're like you want to you know just slump into the couch or whatever it is you do to generally cope with whatever difficult feelings you have um, I think that there's, um, uh, you know, the practice 
also deepens that that experience that that groundedness that you can get on the bike that said um you know i'm in the fortunate position of like we have you know i talk to a lot of people who are getting their first bike they're getting their first serious bike and i actually get to ride with a lot of our riders uh, or other you know people who are are getting their first machine from someone else it doesn't really matter and it's it's actually more accessible than people think. You have to get over that initial, uh, you know, those initial hurdles of like, oh, I feel foolish. I'm wearing this silly spandex, and like, I don't, you know, I don't feel one with this machine. I don't feel comfortable. Uh, the machine feels awkward and foreign, um, or like, I don't know where to go, um, or what if I get a flat, or all these things. Like, there are these barriers, and and I actually spend a lot of time thinking about how to lower the barriers to this experience because it's so such a transformative experience if, if you can access it. Um, but I actually see people getting it very quickly if they, if they let go of the things that stop them from getting the thing that they need. Uh, so I went for a ride with a friend who just got, uh, just got a bike and uh, I took him up Tam and it was his first big ride and it was first real climb. We did a 2000 foot climb to the, to Tam summit from Mill Valley. And, uh, you know, I coached him a little bit on how to like ease in and like, you know, start easier than you think you need. Use that monster pie plate I put on there so that you have plenty of low gearing. That's what it's for. And he got to the top and he felt great. And then he had an, an amazing descent and he was connected with the machine. And, and, you know, this was his like second or third ride in the first real ride that he had had. Um, and even more powerfully, after he's coming back from a um, you know, a major, um, nearly uh, an injury that nearly killed him, uh, some, you know, decade, a uh, couple decades ago, this is like the first time he's getting back into athletics. Uh, so all the more powerful. So I don't think it's, I think you can get there pretty quickly, but the practice helps deepen the experience. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good note to leave on. I think it's something that our listeners can marinate on just the idea of like, get your stuff together, make sure your equipment is dialed so you don't have to think about that. And mm-hmm. just be present in every pedal stroke and be present and grateful for the adventure that these bikes afford us because you don't have to go right, you don't have to go left, go where the wind takes you, go yeah. where the dirt leads you. And one thing I'd love to throw out to the listeners is, um, you know, this is a... this. This segment is an experiment, and so Craig and I would love to hear your feedback on you know, the direction that we're going in, things that you'd like uh, us to explore further, things that we're doing well and not well. Um, we really want this to be uh, as, as interactive as possible, uh, because at the end of the day, um, we're not here to hear ourselves talk. We're here to be a platform for sharing ideas uh, and spreading ideas and, and normalizing conversations that we think need to be had. Yeah, thanks for that, Randall. And it has been great getting your emails and the support. It's just been fun. You know, I've always felt deeply ingrained in the gravel cycling community. And this Mm -hmm. is just another way in which I feel like I'm getting a fire hose of support and conversation that keeps me excited to call you up every week. Yeah, it's it's always a pleasure to to catch up. Uh, And I I value the friendship. Right on, my friend. Until next time. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week on In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. As we said, we welcome your feedback directly via email at craig at thegravelride.bike or over the social media channels. We've also got a phone line set up at 415-843-1701. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we'd be happy to listen to what you have to say and potentially even get it on the show.
And if you're looking for a simple way to support the podcast, ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated. I read everything you write, and it really keeps me jazzed to keep pumping out the episodes. So with that, until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. <laughs>